did the Kantian environmentalist argument go? I think it was great. Like when you showed me that champion brief and I saw that Kantian framework, we started going through arguments, just looked like a great framework. So, I mean, I'm really happy with it. I liked it a lot. That's good. I know did did uh, I know you picked up two rounds at that tournament. Did the Kantian framework really was that a was that a tipping point or did that just not matter a whole lot? Uh, I think that was one of the rounds. There's just something about deriving moral law from Kant in just one paragraph that makes debate so efficient on the affirmative side. I, at least for that resolution. But it was great. Like I think one of the rounds I picked up was the Kantian framework or using my affirmative Kantian framework. Um, and it was just a really concise way to get out the principle and it ended up picking me up around. Nice. That so. means you won one on AF and one on NEG? I believe so. I'll have to go back and check, but I think that, I think that was it. Fantastic. Welcome ladies and gentlemen to another episode of What's the Res? We are here hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. My name is Ethan Delves. And we are here today to do a Lincoln Douglas, uh, really I guess, what should we call this? A paradigm? Paradigm episode? Paradigm yeah, episode. Or I guess now it's a criterion episode because I, we're ta- discussing a value criterion. Oh, are we going to do this a value criterion? I guess, I'll just, I guess I'm just making a new section on the website for criterion uh, episodes. Oh goodness, our website's going to get clunky if we make ep- new divisions. For It'll everything. be fine. It'll be good. Let's just keep this as like an LD technique episode or something. All right, sure. We'll figure that out. We can categorize it later. Uh, So today, Ethan and I are currently reading uh, Immanuel Kant's Groundwork for a Metaphysics of Morals. And for, goodness, I think it was about a year ago, uh, you asked me, how can I do better on the philosophy side of LD? And I told you, uh, take my philosophy class. Yeah, I remember. And now I've taken part of your philosophy class, and I can see why. So we have finally hit the section that an awful lot of debates tend to revolve around, where debaters want to talk about the, uh, they want to talk about deontology, and they want to use Immanuel Kant, and they really like his categorical imperative. Right. So, uh, Ethan, you've seen this used in rounds. People, people pull this out. Yeah, people do pull Kantian frameworks. And when you sent, we looked up that link one time because my Wi-Fi wasn't working. Where it was the value criterions. No, it was because the page was blocked on my iPad. Right. And you sent me that weird, sketchy link with all those gifs that yeah. just appeared in Google Docs. And categorical imperative was under there as a value criterion. And I think people just love it because it's a very efficient way that's typically hard to refute that you can establish whether something is moral or not. And usually the value for that is morality. And that bothers me because people fail at connecting those in like 30 seconds. I don't understand how people use morality as a value. So listeners, if any of you are LD folks and you've run morality and want to uh, send us a message. Uh, we'd honestly, I'd love to get you on the show to explain how morality works in your case. Because at least what... This season, I've judged two different tournaments where I've run into LD people using morality, and they don't even bother to really define it. They just say, my value is morality. Contention one, the thing is good. Yeah, like I, pretty much everyone I run against in both resolutions, like I, we just had the SAT-ACT one for October, and now we had the fossil fuels one. I saw morality in both of those. It's a really, like, it's, it's a really versatile value, and... How do you how do you even describe morality in like thirty seconds? Because then there's like this card, this card, this card. Now right. this has got to be moral. I'm like, okay, even if that is moral, how do you by any means justify that with your criteria? Well, man, in it's terms, just like you you can't yeah. do that with any value. How are no. you supposed to like? This is my biggest question about LD that I think I still need to read my LD handbooks and whatever for is how am I supposed to establish a a sort of a priori to go off of at the beginning of my case, which is my value, and then justify that even though it's a first principle. Right? So, like, how am I supposed to defend Basically, that? I mean, so, in, in one sense, it's the very quest of philosophy itself. And yeah. it's, it's the, the theory of it I love. In practice, it is so hard to do. And 
I, I don't have to do it in the pressure of real rounds, but at least when we do our practice rounds, I find it really hard to keep all the pieces of what you've got to do in a, either an AF or a NEG together because the theory is pretty straightforward, I think, that your value functions as what Aristotle called literally first principles, right. the first things upon which all others are built. So you're asserting that, uh, and then all of your art, that should give your arguments all a purpose. Which stops framework. people from challenging the assertion too, because I think both debaters tend to realize like, okay, I can't do this for the entire rebuttal because I've got points to respond to. So you kind of assume that they've established their a priori and then it just goes on to weighing. Um, a lot of policy judges also like that a lot where you just kind of establish the value. It's just kind of there and then you weigh it at the end right. and, and you call it a day. So. Oh, and especially when, I mean, and certain resolutions when the wording committee for the NSDA does it right, and I, I think the, the SAT and ACT lent itself to a pretty good values framework. Yeah, I think the Even, fossil I fuels morality one there, is yeah. terrible for values. I mean, oh yeah, I, it yeah. lends itself so quickly to policy type arguments. One of my first opponent, we both debated that round, and we came out of there, and we both were like, "What happened to LD? Like, <laughs> what? Why is this not LD anymore?" Uh, and I, I was like, you know, big questions is kind of like LD. LD is now public forum, and public forum is now policy. So I don't even know what's happening, but well, that seems to be the hierarchy there. Maybe so. All right. So, but let's let's spend a moment on the categorical imperative. Um, I think since I've been teaching this recently, it's very fresh in my mind. So if, uh, tell me if you're on board with this. I'll kind of run through what the categorical imperative is and pull up a good quote from okay. Kant. And, and then tell me what you think about how this would actually work in a round. Okay, go for it. Okay, so in his Groundwork for Metaphysics of Morals, which if you were really wanting to be a good debater and do your groundwork or do your, your background research, you really need to slog through Kant. Uh, and it's it's great mental exercise. I suspect you would also work really good for spreading drills if you wanted to try that with something complicated. Oh, yeah. Um, but in the groundwork for Metaphysics of Morals, Immanuel Kant has set himself the task of responding to uh, Scottish skeptic David Hume, where Hume, through his treatise concerning human nature, has asserted that all abstract ideas, like morality, among many others, are nothing more than bundles of assumptions that are sort of grouped together through our commonly understood assumptions and labels. And he, he approaches that with sort of a nominalist way of thinking, that we just approach a group of things we assume to be morality, and we set that up, we set that up our minds get those assumptions, and we label it morality. Well, Kant fundamentally believes that there is some kind of moral law that is real, at least the way I, I believe this works out, and if any Kantian scholars happen to listen to this and want to write us or call in uh, to tell us uh, how I've misunderstood Kant, please do. I'd love to get an actual Kantian on the show. Um, that, that's not me. I'm more of a dabbler and a high school teacher. Uh, I'm no Kant expert, but here's at least what I've got. Kant's goal is to go further back in the argument than David Hume does. Hume is an empiricist. Kant tries to straddle both rationalism and empiricism. And in, in order to really save morality and save ethics and save traditional categories of action from Hume's skepticism, Kant has to go really way back. He has to go all the way back to uh, assert instead that uh, we have to get something a priori, something before, from before, there's the Latin there, uh, from before existence itself. And the categorical imperative is his answer for that. He believes that he can find the moral law that exists even before people exist. 
and a moral law that is binding and obligatory on all rational beings. He calls this moral law the categorical imperative. And I love how all philosophers set themselves a massive task at the beginning of their text, and then very rarely do they end up actually meeting the goal. But so far, Kant seems to be doing a pretty good job. And Descartes also did that. And although I really like Descartes, I don't think he also met the goal. But yeah, it's just interesting. They just set themselves these massive, massive parameters to fill. Uh, It just starts smaller. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is philosophy, but like, come on, man, you're trying to prove like everything. Uh, it's true, but if you, I mean, if you, and in one sense, if you start small, you can, you have a better shot of hitting it. But if your goal is glory and major accomplishment, you well, got he big. definitely got that. Yeah. Okay. So. so I found the quote I was looking for. Um, this is from section one of the groundwork, where Kant lays out the categorical imperative in its most clear and most famous uh, language as this principle: quote. Act only in accordance with that maxim through which you can, at the same time, will that it become a moral law. I'm universal sorry, law. A universal law. So what Kant means here, I think, is, is two things. He believes that this is the fundamental principle of how we achieve morals. Uh, so we're dealing with an action, of course, and this action, we have to think of our actions in terms of a maxim, a rule. A rule, and in order to get to this maxim uh, that it is moral, we have to be able to will that our maxim become a universal law that binds all other people. Now, the trick here is that Kant, pushes, Kant puts a lot of emphasis on this word "will." Uh, in the say, in the groundwork, he explains that the one thing that can be good good without qualification is a good will. What he means by that is that when we use our reason correctly, we perceive. What is good? That's the part that was Kant is making a bit of a leap there, I think. But he is he's asserting that if we reason correctly, we perceive what is good, and that reasoning produces within us an obligation to actually do what is good. Well, to go back to categorical imperative, the way this principle works then is that you will that it become a universal law that everyone else do what you are going to do. Now, Kant suggests, or he argues, that you cannot sincerely will that everyone else make a bad choice and think that that should be what people ought to do. Instead, if you go through this process correctly, he argues, then you actually are willing that everyone else do the right thing. So I have a couple of questions about that, and then we'll sort of go into the debate context of how this would work out in a round. That sounds great. What you got? First, I'm looking at tonight's philosophy reading, which I've done most of already. Which I haven't read, so I'm probably wrong about whatever I'm about to say, This is I'll I'll go for it. This is more just like a formatting thing. He puts it in, in very short words. He says, I only ask myself, colon, canst thou also will that thy maxim should be a universal law? If not, then it must be rejected. And it's literally that simple. You just imagine if you would want something to be a, a universal law. I know you're going to put stress on the word will here because you know Kant's a deontologist. Yeah. And I challenge that claim a lot because I can see that he that you're looking at a law or a maxim and then you're evaluating it based on whether or not or what it would look like if everybody accepted this and acted upon it. But my problem with that is that in doing that, you're looking at the consequences of everybody acting out this maxim which makes it look like a really consequentialist sort of framework. So that's where I'm having trouble seeing Kant as a deontologist. Do you have an answer for that? Yes, and it involves paying careful attention to kind of what he's doing in the rest of the groundwork. Uh, And really, uh, for Kant, 
what you, it's not about the consequences. And it's not about, it's, it's rather looking at the nature of things and, and discerning through right reason whether that action is itself ontologically at its essence a good action or whether it's ontologically at its essence a bad action. But you're looking at it through the consequences no, of your methodology. No, 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 okay. no. So, so for example, uh, I think this is the example I used in class today. Um, so if you're dealing with a soldier who has just received orders that he must go to the front and he has particularly dangerous orders that he knows could take, will take him in harm's way. Well, he's faced with a moral choice there. He will either obey the orders or he will fail to obey the orders. If he does, in fact, obey the orders, then he will be acting in accordance with his moral responsibility. If he doesn't, he'll be failing that responsibility. But he has to make that choice. And to run that through Kant's categorical imperative, what he has to do is consider, okay, if, when I consider this, if I consider my action to be the creation of a universal law, which, as we'll get through in part three, Kant is going to say that every human being is a legislator in the kingdom oh, of ends. Okay. So every action actually carries substantial weight. You are actually, through your actions, endorsing that action for all humanity as being what ought to be the case. Interesting. So in that moment, our imaginary soldier has to weigh this and decide, will I reject my orders and thereby probably save my life or go and possibly lose my life? For Kant, you cannot evaluate this in terms of the consequences. What you have to actually discern is whether the action is itself good or that action is bad. And how do you determine if it's good or bad? Well, the one way that you do that is you consider, okay, and what, what is my, this is where Kant requires us to abstract out, this is where to a universal transcendental level. What is the moral law that's involved here? What does, the mor what does the moral nature of reality demand? Well, one way that he thinks we can see that is through blowing this up to a universal level. And you're looking at me already like you see this is going to Because gonna this is getting circular. Yeah, I'm but, not entirely convinced, but I won't waste everyone's time on the okay. episode debating this because we've already done this in like third period two we have, days ago. I know. Yeah. But the, the point here is that Kant believes if you, if you go up to this level, you say, okay, well, if everyone focused on saving their own lives to the exclusion of their moral duty. Well, that's obviously bad. Why is it bad? Well, because what that's going to revolve, that collapses loyal, that rejects loyalty, that rejects friendship, that rejects obligation, that, it, that asserts that I have to value my own life over other people's lives. And all of those actions are really about me rather than about fulfilling my moral duty. Which I was almost going to say that sounds like consequences, but you kind of framed it so it doesn't sound I'm, like... I'm yeah, trying right. very hard to avoid talking about no, whether anyone good. lives or dies, because yeah. this is my own personal beef with this. I have, uh, I have written this on a couple of ballots, so if anyone got those ballots, I don't apologize. I just hope that you do better on your next one. Um, when people <laughs> pair Kant in any way with consequentialism... Which they do every time. It is philosophically jarring if you have read Kant. Because Kant, as I think even just only reading the first 20 pages, you've seen Kant goes very heavily yeah, he on he hates this. consequences. He's not about the consequences. Openly, too. Like, he has several paragraphs where he's like, it's not about the consequences, period. It's literally about the nature of the, that action. 
And the way you discern that action is through imagining it on a universal level, which lets you get beyond your particular circumstances. So it's not about situational ethics. It's instead perceiving what does this action look like in light of a universal perspective? And if I think about my action as creating a law that from this point on, every time any other soldier faces this dilemma, this is what he must do. Well, what, what does that cause, what does that action bring into being? Now that's, so yeah. that then is, I mean, I think that's the categorical imperative. And Kant, the last thing I want to get out before you take us into more debate-centered territory, okay. is that Kant believes this governs any and all rational beings. Every rational being is what's governed by the command that the categorical imperative and this overseas. pairs so well with the literature curriculum that we're learning right now. I know none of the listeners, or I mean, if anyone listening know, goes to school. Hopefully like, everyone who's made it through high school and definitely through college should have encountered Gulliver's Travels at one point. Yeah, so I don't know if that's just like my first thought. But thinking about this in a debate sort of context, most people use the categorical imperative as the value criterion. And the reason for doing that is because it's a literal methodology for determining whether or not something is moral. So people love to pair it with morality. I don't know if I've necessarily encountered a case myself where it's paired with morality, but I know that it's a common criterion to put next to morality because you just run it through the imperative and if it works, it's moral. And I, as far as thinking about it in terms of debate, especially in the direction that LD has gone recently, I'm thinking about how much time should be spent on questioning and cross-examination and refuting the philosophical framework as it stands. And if refuting the framework necessarily means, and effectively refuting the framework means that the opponent's case has to fall because it's built on a, on a shaky foundation. So I'm thinking not only in terms of the categorical imperative, but other um, value criterions as well, that when you question someone on them, if you come up with something maybe like a counterexample to show that the ethical system no longer works, does that mean that the entire case falls? What do you think? If the case is constructed correctly and if the judge follows the arguments and the arguments are sound, please notice those are a lot of conditions. I would say yes, because if, a, if an LD case is executed correctly it, and if it has a value proposition that is being, or a proposition of value that's being debated, then your, your assertion at the beginning that Democracy is our highest value with our value criterion of increasing access to votes. Every argument should be oriented towards that. And if you can then come up against my case and say, actually, um, order is our highest value and governmental stability is the criterion. And if you can show me that that's more important, that's the highest thing. The rounds that I find, and I've read this on a couple, I think of your ballots. I know Megan got some of this back. Chloe got some of this. When you have good judges, which is always a roll of the dice. Yep, always. And I, I think at this last tournament, I think we had more we had more policy-oriented judges than we did at the previous I one. actually had one judge who debated both policy and LD, yeah. so that was really interesting. But I think when you have more LD-oriented judges, what one thing that they're really looking for is to see that values clash. I know I've run into several rounds where people will, one side will want to collapse their case under the other's value yeah. framework. And I don't know why you would necessarily do that. I mean, I think if what you're doing is a bit risky in that moment because you're, de you're declaring, my case is actually not important enough to really defend, but I'm going to win on my opponent's case. Yeah, and it's a popular strategy too. I know Matthew Tweeden was telling us a while ago that he 
qualified for the Coolidge Cup tournament by collapsing his own value structure and went, or I think it was like yielding everything except one or a couple of impacts maybe, and he won the entire round on that. So it can work. Um, You've got to execute it flawlessly and have the right judge who will notice what you're doing and And catch the strategy. If anyone can execute it, it's Matthew Tweeden. So I'm I'm not surprised that he was able to do that. But as far as values clash goes, it kind of raises the question because I see plenty of people weighing values and they call it values clash. But to me, it seems a lot more like value weighing where they're just going to say why my value is better than my opponent's value. If you, and this actually, I'm reminded of the time that I read the utilitarianism essay by John Stuart Mill and reading that essay showed me the flaws in the way that people use that paradigm in debate. And this is the same thing with Kant. Reading Kant shows me that he is extremely against consequences. So you're quoting him, and you're quoting something that he actually does believe in, but when you put it in context of the entire ethical system, which is outside of just the categorical imperative, because you have to value will, you need to value people as ends instead of means, when all of that's put together, you have the system. So if you know the system, you're able to refute the paradigm, the way that people use it, because they can't describe the entire system in um, you know 45 seconds, one minute of an affirmative or negative constructive. Well, and it is the kind of thing that... Uh, would at least push back against some of what I think we've experienced where you have bigger schools that are writing combined cases and I'm sure there are some seniors and juniors on their teams who do understand all the nuances but I cannot imagine that some of these novices understand the philosophy behind what they're arguing nor can I imagine them actually writing those cases. Someone helped them a lot. With yeah, those cases. It, that that's one thing. But I think still the juniors and seniors, like the way that I've heard utilitarianism described all the time, and you you've told it to me this way because we haven't actually gotten to that in philosophy class yet. Was it's the greatest happiness principle? We're looking for the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest number. GHP baby. Yeah. Pluses and minuses. Bring on the hedonic calculus. I remember that. I actually wrote that down in my notes, but. When it comes down to it, there's a lot of examples that he uses, and I think there was one more thing that I highlighted, but then I lost the PDF because of the transition between different tracks, so I will be doing that again. But there was this one thing that I realized went against everything that people would say in debate about greatest happiness for greatest number. I was like, no, there's actually another part to this, and... um, Man, I wish I remember what it was, but I don't. Greatest happiness for the greatest number at the least pain. It would probably had something to do with the pain, yeah. yeah. But it was a, it was a very specific nuance that would be a caveat for a lot of different cases that I saw. And so, I think that applies to the categorical imperative as well. I think so, which I think if what we're to kind of bring this, maybe we're, we're sprawling a little bit a little, in this yeah. episode. So to bring this back a little bit, I think what we're suggesting is that um, if, you were going, if you were going to run the categorical imperative as a value criterion, if you're going to be philosophically consistent, you should pair that with deontology. And deontology is hideously difficult to run in debate because so much of debate runs on visible, calculatable impacts, which deontology doesn't care about. A, and we have a previous episode on deontology, if any of you want to go back and listen to that. It's back in our first season uh, catalog. But the deontological framework is all about asserting a moral obligation and saying, you have to do this. Why? Because you have to do this. It is your responsibility. And Kant is literally operating within that framework. He is not, he, do, he as we've said already, he doesn't care about consequences. So what I would love to see is people doing one of two things, either being honest and consistent in their cases, and if they're going to be consequentialists, they need to run John Dewey or uh, William James or some uh, or, or John Stuart Mill 
and take any of the consequentialist thinkers as their framework paradigm quote source and leave Kant out of it. Or this would be cool. This would be a totally different world of debate that we're, I, I don't know that it ever really existed, but it's certainly not existed in the last hundred years. Do something bizarre and actually assert a moral obligation that people have to live according to. And then run Kant as your way of showing that. And then uphold affirmative or negative, not on a level of, well, if you affirm AF today, this many lives will be lost. Or if you affirm NEG today, we will save the planet. Don't do that. Instead, you'll be doing the right thing. Actually run a case saying, well, because we are rational animals and we have stewardship responsibilities, as Immanuel Kant shows us, we are morally obligated to take care of the planet because we understand the consequences of our actions. And at that point, it makes a little bit more sense to run morality as your value if you're going to be consistent. At the end of my fourth round, I still don't even see morality as a value because all morality is. Morality is a blanket umbrella term. Yeah, it's probably to, the most broad value yeah, in all it, of LD. Well, it's not even a value. I mean, what does it even mean to say I value morality? All you, all you're saying in that moment. I is asked like, someone that, and they said that you, and they it says that you value good things, and I was like, okay, what's good? That is the most. And no, I said what's answer. good. Hold on, you're gonna get triggered. So I want to get it on <laughs> film or on whatever audio. I asked them what good was, and they were saying that it's whatever benefits. And I, so I do awful. not remember the criterion. But it was not consequentialism because I called them on it and they said, no, I'm not a consequentialist. And that, you know, that was the end of it. So I, I would not really recognize morality as a sub substantial value. Instead, I mean, take a, I mean, you have so many other possible values. But if you were going to run, uh, you were going to run the categorical imperative. Uh, it, it works with almost everything. It's just a, it's a method for measuring whether or not something's moral. It, well, it works for something if you were actually upholding a sincere ought and if you reject, the ought is divine. So it definitely does lean towards one side or the other of the resolution. You probably it does. could not. You, you should not be able right? to say both. Yeah. Because, again, at least. So it's probably an affirmative thing because affirmative is affirming some sort of ought, unless it's an ought not resolution. Right. And, and Kant is affirming. This is another part that I suspect the class will uh, rather violently disagree with. I mean, if you think about it the right way, we will always reach the same answer. <laughs> Either consequentially and deontologically? No, no, no. That, that's what Kant is saying. Oh. If you apply the categorical imperative and you use reason correctly, we will always reach the same answer. See, that's the thing. Can you <laughs> refute someone with that in cross-examination to be compelling to a judge? No. So I'm, I'm just going to ask someone, okay, like you just ran the categorical imperative. Are you saying that everybody would rationally reach the same moral decision? And Kant would say yes. And any sensible person who doesn't want to be trapped in an LD cross-examination would probably say no. In which case, they have just defeated their own values. Here's the yes, exactly. So that's a cool refutation. So if anyone wants to use that, I might actually try that eventually. <laughs> but, I mean, one of the best pieces of advice I got from feedback from the last tournament, this was after my fourth round, was the judge said just to stick to your guns. And no matter what, Always. do not abandon the narrative that you set up during your, first, during your 1AC or your 1NC. And just carry it all the way through, no matter how dumb it sounds, no matter anything. Because consistency matters more than flipping the script in the final rebuttal and trying to gain yourself a couple more points. So that was just one really valuable thing that I learned, and I'm definitely going to implement that more. Because I did kind of do a weird 180 in the last... I ended up picking up the round, but I did do a weird 180 that he picked up on. 
And he was like, just stick to your guns. It sounds so much better to the judge. And I can see that working really well. I, I would only echo that because certainly as a, as a flow judge, I'm trying to track. and I'm, I'm not the best flow judge. I mean, I've seen people with much more detailed flows than That's mine. That's good because I'm not the best flower. So Anyway, uh, but, but what I am looking for, I, there is something, and I, you've called me on this in debate rounds that I've done with, uh, I think that one I did with John Bagwell on the, uh, the adversity score. Which, what, what you told you me at the end of it that you wanted me to come back to my value from the beginning. Yeah, because I appreciate the values. There's debate. something, well, it's not just that, but there is something rhetorically about the power of opening a speech with this particular idea, quote, concept, run the whole speech or debate in this case, and then bring the judge right back around to that first opening idea. The, uh, the technical term for it is called an inclusio. You kind of bookend your argument and it just sums up the whole thing beautifully. And actually holding to your narrative either on AF or NEG has the potential for that, but it requires quite a lot of skill to... You've still got to do everything that you need to do in an LD round. You also need to refute the opponent. You also have to keep hold of your own narrative in your mind and not be swayed by your opposition and also manage all of your time correctly to have time And to I think that's, that. that would just raise the quality of debate so much more because instead of strategically picking out what parts – well, obviously you want to still be strategic, but like what parts of consequentialism might work, but I compare it with the imperative. You're making a strong argument, but it's not necessarily coherent. And the pieces are sort of broken, but you're patching them together. But it doesn't, doesn't, that's not the way it needs to be. If you can stick with your value and your criterion the whole time, and they're consistent within all of your arguments, then I can see that being a much more compelling case. So really, this comes down to, like, you can run the categorical imperative. It's a good thing to run, and it's pretty difficult to refute as long as you're consistent with it and you're running it on the right side of the resolution. Does that seem fair? It does, and I, but I also want to be cautious because I have been overly optimistic about philosophically strong things in debate before. And what we can't also what we can't forget in this is that the number one priority for the debater is also do everything that you know you should do, but also read the judge. Yeah. You've got to read your judge. If they're if your a policy judge, judge, what are you going to do, man? Like they. Oh, if I'm if I'm going well. I don't know that I'd tailor it necessarily to the to the, the, the style necessarily, but if the judge's paradigm is on tab room, I'm reading that thing, I'm figuring out anything the judge will tell me. If I'm walking into the round and the judge asks, so, uh, do you have any questions? I want to know, hey, what's your preference? What do you what do you think is important about debate? I understand what you're saying, and I do that. I mean, I read the paradigms, and I go in knowing what the judge likes to hear, whether it's impact calculus or weighing impacts at the end, and you're, you focus more on the value or focus more on how the contentions meet the criteria and whatnot. But this doesn't sit well with me because I'm thinking, like, why don't the judges just align with the values of LD debate instead of the debater aligning with the values of the judge? Well, that's just like a very – that's just a ought. It's just an ought about debate that yeah. I'm thinking about, and I wish it would happen that way, but it doesn't. So, so I mean, align, we have. much as uh, I know you know I despise David Hume, but as much as I, I despise him, I'm going to positively quote him on the show. Wow. Um, a line that we did not deal very much with in our Hume unit in class is one that Hume is famous for. You cannot derive an ought from an is. Wow, cannot Hume derive, is great. Oh, God, I can't even <laughs> affirm that on the show. It's <laughs> I'm just so kidding. horrible. So, yes, you were right. Triggered. That was the right word. There. I know. Yeah. Okay. But the reason I even bring that up is because debate is such a weird activity in so many levels. Because on the one hand, the people that really do this eventually stick with it because they love the game. 
and you want to win, but I, most people lose 50 to 80% of their rounds, right? I mean, they have to mathematically at a tournament. But you stick with it because you love it, and you love it because you have some certain vision of what debate ought to be. There's your ought, and your ought and your is are not always connected because what you think debate ought to be is often quite different than what debate is. And those two things aren't always, they're not always separate, but yeah. I, so I yeah. think at the one hand to be, com to be competitive, at least you have to pay a lot of attention to what debate actually is in the moment and recognize that it changes year after year. So debating is this weird, but that makes it more nuanced too. And it, it, it means that you need to be on your feet and constantly keeping up with this stuff, reading the paradigm as you go into the room. And you need to have a vast, like a huge variety of skills so that if you can need to weigh impacts in one round, you're skilled enough to be able to do that. But if you need to focus in on value structure and the philosophy of the debate more, then you can just pull that skill out of your tool belt and go for it. So it, I can see how that would be fun because you need to focus on oh, developing yeah. a ton of different skills. But I think there's, there's at least some point where all of those skills need to come together to make a better whole picture than using them separately to win different rounds. Because debate is better when all of those tools come together. Oh, I opinion. agree with you, man. Which, I mean, is honestly, and some of that is, part of that is why the Coolidge League is such kind of a cool thing, where they're trying to kind of push back against some of those other parts of debate that are shifting away from really the valuable aspects of, of debate. But we're running quite far afield. Any last thoughts on the categorical imperative before we wrap this thing up? I'm just going to say I enjoy learning about the categorical imperative in philosophy class. I'm definitely going to try it in a debate round, and my priority with that or with any value criterion that my opponent comes up with is going to ask, going to be asking more questions in cross-examination to see if I can dismantle the system that they're operating under and see if I can win a debate on value and criterion framework instead of the nitty gritty. That's, I, I think that's a great, that's a great approach. And the, the, the new jargon term that I've recently learned that I've, I've known the idea for a while, but I really like the term is delinking. Oh um, yeah, you, you were telling me about that. Yeah, I uh, had a, was a pair of debaters from uh, Cary Academy that used the phrase to name what they were doing to their opposition. I thought it was very effective. And it's, it's, it's looking at the terminology of uh, the claim warrant impact structure and how all three of those pieces are linked together. And really on rebuttal, then it creates an interesting approach where you can either directly address why each of one, of, one or all of those pieces are wrong or the delinking approach is to attack the connections between those. That's and if, nice. If you can attack the connection, say, okay, well, that evidence does not support that claim. You've delinked the warrant, and that disconnects the impacts. Or if you can say, okay, well, you have an awful lot of evidence, but your evidence does not actually cause the impacts. You've delinked the impacts. And I think what you're describing could really fit well with that, where if you have a strong understanding of the categorical imperative and someone is using it in a round incorrectly, they're using, they, uh, I, mean, I literally, I've, I've seen this case where they, my value for this round is utility and my value criterion is the categorical imperative. And like, well, that should produce like, ugh, no, that, that shouldn't, you can't put those It's like together. mixing oil and water. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, my first response there would be to attempt to say, okay, so tell me about utility. What is that? Okay. And so tell me about the categorical comparative. How is it attached to moral obligation? And I want to show the judge very quickly 
how those contradict each other. And if my if my instinct is right, they'll probably get the definition of utility right, but then when they go for the categorical imperative, it's going to be using utility. Like my skepticism towards earlier in the episode where I'm asking about is it con a consequentialist, which I'm yet to figure out, they're going to be using the categorical imperative in, a, in light of utility, and they're going to make it look like it goes together when it actually Which doesn't. means that, So again, understand the yeah. system. Like, re take right. the time to, like, literally open the philosophy book, even though sometimes I really don't want to. I'll, I'll do it, because he, you know, you teach the class. I, I, I need to read I, the homework I, yep. to do the quiz. And so, as I mean, uh, yeah. you probably know from more recent quizzes, if you do the reading, you pass the quiz. Right, that's yeah. That's how it goes. And it seems to, as we get into more modern philosophy, that seems to be a stronger trend. Yep. Okay. Oddly so, enough, ancient philosophy, even though it's further back in time, it's so much easier to understand. Just read the philosophy, and I guarantee you will find something in the system that will help you when you're trying to refute it. On that note, I think we're going to draw this to a close. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for this episode of What's the Res? We hope you've enjoyed this episode about Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative. We hope that it's helpful to you as you are preparing for debate. Please do let us know if this was helpful or if you are a Kantian expert or even just an LD person, not to diminish your value as an LD person. <laughs> but if you're an LD debater and want to come on the show and tell us how you've used that, uh, please do drop us a line. You can get in touch with us in a variety of ways. You can email us at whatstheres at gmail.com. You can contact us across our various social media platforms. We're on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and Reddit with the handle at whatstheres underscore. And we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstheres. And you can find our website at www.whatstheres.com. And until next time. Oh, oh wait. What? We can't forget it. Are we you can't forget do it. it. Oh, yeah. All right, go uh, for it. Just go in case it. you have uh, missed out on debate or you're listening to this round later in the year when you're kind of in between tournaments, if you need more debate in your life, we've got that covered. You can check out our premium debates at whatstheres.podbean.com slash premium or on our website at whatstheres.com where uh, you can find our premium content. Plug the premium content. All the way, man. All the way. We're going to fund your college and be, buy me a new car out of this premium Hopefully. content. Hopefully. That's Hopefully. the goal. So, uh, but each month we produce a new episode where we have real debates by real people, where uh, educated non-experts debate the major issues. In October, we have a universal basic income debate. In November, we're doing a racial reparations debate. Uh, where the resolution was racial reparations are a requirement of justice. And we'll have a lot more. I think we have a contraception episode coming up either in December or January. So uh, we, we like to take on controversial, relevant topics. And you can access those for $3 a month or $30 a year. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. <laughs>